Well, I would also like to welcome everybody. Uh, you know, having a time for doing retreats is a very special, special occasion. And uh, um, I'm just happy that everybody has come, made the journey, and we're all here together. Uh, Catherine just came into my room just a few minutes ago to let me know that there are a few people who weren't able to come because of a, an automobile accident that they were just in. So there's three people who are coming from Colorado Springs who aren't with us this evening. Um, other than that, I don't see Jan here, has she? Jan called and said she'll be late. She'll be late? She'll be here. Okay, great. Um, a number of you I know, some of you I haven't met yet, and I'm looking forward to getting to know you more. And, um, you know, having six days together for doing meditation practice, for some people it's a brand new experience. There's a few people this is their first retreat. And uh, it's, a, it's a discovery, it's an uncovery, it's, a, it's an opening. And for other people it's also a discovery, an uncovery, and an opening. And it's just that with people who've had more time doing retreats, Sometimes what comes is the expectation of how it is or how it's supposed to be or what it's supposed to be like is contrasted to what the last one or the last several were. So having an opportunity to enter into a sacred space of just allowing the busyness of thinking about the past and remembering what's going on in the past and figuring out things about the future, we have an opportunity to come into the present and into the present moment is, a, is, a, is an invitation to awaken and be alive to all that's actually happening in the present. And so we're going to use the four foundations of mindfulness as a way of, of, of a theme or a shape to allowing the practice to unfold in a, a way of, of, of giving uh, systematic instruction over the course of the time that we're here together. But the practice, in essence, is actually very simple. The practice is about being present with what's arising and feeling how we are responding to that. So that's not complicated. And we can do that whether we're in the meditation hall or we're getting on our shoes or we're in the dining hall or we're going for a walk on these lovely gardens and yard and, and in, the, in the mountains and the foothills around us. Just a constant willingness to bring attention into what's actually happening now. How am I feeling and responding? And how am I relating to that? Now, one of the blessings of being in a place like this, I've never been here before, this is the first time, is that this is an intentional community that uses the principle of bringing that which is sacred and blessed into every aspect of their life. And so one of the first things that I noticed when I came on the property was there were four birds that were in the tree and they were singing. And one of the things that one notices, or I notice, when the community of people are living in harmony with each other and in harmony with the land, is, is that the nature around responds. The animals, the trees, the plants. There's a sense of a, of a kind of a, a well-being or a sense of safety, a sense of, of, of radiance. And in places where people have been practicing and doing very strong practice, or there are places where there are masters living and practicing, sometimes the energy is palpable. You can really feel it. So it's for me also a privilege that we're able to be here, you know, because it's not often the case that one is practicing in, in a sacred place that has been 
uh, intentionally cultivated for many decades now. 1945 is a long time ago. So we are in a in a safe in a safe place in a safe situation, and the opportunity to open up to what's actually happening is a, is a is a pre- is a pleasure. It's a privilege. It's a it's an opportunity to uncover the kind of richnesses of our own interior world, and it's not uh, our lifestyle is not set up to support that. Our lifestyle is set up to to ask us to do many, many, many different things and respond to many different needs. But there isn't a lot of emphasis or attention on going inwards and being present with what's happening and allowing it to unfold in a way where we're moving more towards that which is in balance, moving away from what is out of balance, and learning how to feel a sense of peacefulness that comes (coughs) when we are present with things without a kind of demanding things be any particular way. So, you know, if I were to summarize meditation, you know, I would say that meditation really has two kind of fundamental aspects to it or characteristics to it. One characteristic is to is to bring balance to the things that we're experiencing, to our bodies, to our hearts, our moods, to our minds and to begin to learn how to cultivate a sense of, of understanding what's balanced and what's out of balance and moving towards what's helpful and moving away from what's not helpful. And so when we just look at body, you know, learning how to relax the body, you know, learning how to energize the body when we're tired, you know, getting a sense of how do we move in relationship with our body so that there's a sense of ease and well-being where we're feeling connected rather than disconnected or beside ourselves, you know, leaning forward and somehow outside of a connection with who we are and what's happening. So presence with our own physical body is an important part of what we're doing here, just feeling our physical body moving through the course of a day. In, a, in, the, in the course, feeling our body sitting and walking and standing, and learning how to sense what's happening so that we can just allow awareness to make very small changes so that there's more sense of ease and well-being and less sense of, of tightness or sense of striving or sense of, of, of pressure or sense of numbness or blanking out. So we also have our hearts and our minds and we have patterns that arise and thoughts that come again and again and again. And with each of these areas of our lives is an inquiry about understanding what's arising and how to move more into balance and how to move away from what is unskillful. So, you know, we have all kinds of ideas that come up or thoughts about ourselves and a lot of them are not at all skillful but we don't necessarily have the right relationship with what is arising. And so it's not that we need to have control over what's arising. What's helpful is to learn how to relate to it in a way where we are no longer causing any kind of suffering in our relationship with what's arising. So this is our views and values and ideas and thoughts and belief systems. And then we also have, you know, moods and emotions and 
and senses of feeling about things, you know, how we feel about things and how we respond to the way we feel. And again, the same is true. There's a whole learning about understanding how we feel and how we're relating to that in a way that we begin to move more towards what's helpful and moving away towards what's not helpful. So one large aspect of meditation is learning how to develop the conditions of our body and hearts and minds in a way that we are moving in a way that's skillful and away from that which is not skillful. And for many, many of us, this could be something that could occupy our whole life. You know, we could spend our whole life trying to figure out how to live more in balance. And it's a noble life, living in balance, you know. And in the, in the way of learning about living in balance, there's a whole, you know, l- learning about how to work with containment, how to work with precepts, how to work with integrity, the importance of generosity, the importance of, of our families and our spiritual communities, and how to cultivate these in a way that helps support us understanding what our limits are and boundaries are, and how to... Um, move in a way where we feel more congruent with our internal values in terms of what we're doing and how we're relating in the world. So the Theravadan tradition is also very grounded, you know. I was liking he was saying it's very grounded, you know, and he emphasized that, you know, the sense of being, bringing the sacred and the blessed into every part of one's life is also something that we are interested in doing here in this practice. Because it's, it's not about just what happens in the shrine room. It's about, you know, what happens throughout the course of a day. It's, a, it's about the way we're relating to food. It's about how we are relating to the resources that we use. It's about what happens when we speak, what, what, what we're saying, what, and what kind of thoughts that we're following in our, own, in our own minds. It's not just about a kind of refined uh, practice that happens when we're in a, a shrine room. With, with this kind of a, a situation that's been set up. And so, you know, this sense of bringing the quality of awareness and mindfulness into every aspect of our lives is something that I hope is, uh, from the very onset, is, is part of what our practicing together supports. But you see, the problem is, is, is that if we are looking at meditation as about bringing balance into our lives, then inevitably, inevitably, we are ending up in a situation where we're a little bit up a creek without a paddle because there's only a limit to how much we can bring balance into our lives if our assumption is is that balance is some kind of mechanism, whether it's very subtle or not, of being in control. So if being in balance requires somehow being able to move away from things which are out of balance, there's a limit to how much we can do that because there's a limit to how much we have control over what's in balance and out of balance. So, you know, looking at catastrophic situations or traumatic situations or loss or grief or very severe illness, looking at the gateways of death. Some of us have close friends who are in a profound journey navigating the gateway of death. And, you know, for many people, this is not an imbalanced, in-control experience. And so if our entire orientation around meditation is about staying in balance, 
then it feels like inevitably we're going to come up against a wall and either feel that we failed or that the meditation practice has failed. Because there's so many times in life that feel like it's just simply out of control. So then a whole other part of meditation practice is not just about bringing control or balance, but about learning how to be present with things as they are without actually asking them or expecting them or hoping that they can change in any way. And so in order to be able to shift from one kind of way of practicing to another way of practicing, one needs another frame of reference. And so the other frame of reference is rather than me being here, wanting to go there or get that or have that or get rid of this, there has to be the ability to see that awareness is something that one can rest in by itself. That one can actually bring attention and allow it to rest in awareness itself. And when attention is resting in awareness itself, it shifts our relationship with our own I sense of self, our own identity, and it shifts our relationships with the objects of what we're experiencing. So, in that context, there is more capacity for watching something that is arising. We might have all kinds of opinions and views about it, but there's the space to know it and to see it in a way where we're not reacting to it in the way that we used to. So one of the, the uh, examples or the similes or metaphors that I've used often is, is that you know we have this sh- shrine room and you know, already this is the composite of a whole teamwork of effort. You know, Heather came up here and helped with the shrine and Kevin sent her on a mission to go get lovely things so that we could have it here and people brought flowers and other things to contribute and, you know, Prion's been helping to be organizing this retreat and Anne and Catherine have supported. So there's a whole kind of field of what's gone into just getting here. And then we have cushions and I'm talking, we've got plants and we've got lights and there's windows, there's carpet, there's chairs. We had a couple rounds of figuring out how we wanted to place this, everything so that it had a nice feeling to it, you know. And the lights will go out, I'll stop talking, we'll be sitting quietly for a while, we'll take precepts later, and we'll go back to our own quarters and we'll rest. So you can get a sense that everything in the, in the space changes. The light changes, the sound changes, the flowers change, the, the candles will change, eventually the paint will change, the carpet will change. You know. But what doesn't change in this space is the space. The space stays the same. But most of our lives we're not oriented towards noticing the space. We notice the things. So we like it when it's beautiful. We like the shrine when it's lovely. We like the flowers when they're beautifully arranged. We like it when it feels a, 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 a comfortable temperature. We like it when the, it feels peaceful. We don't like it if there's anything too, too startling or jarring or uncomfortable. Well, that's a kind of example of what happens in our own body, hearts, and minds. We are organized around wanting things to be comfortable and pleasant and congruent with who we take ourselves to be. And we try and organize ourselves so that we're not having to feel anything that's uncomfortable or painful or discordant with what we take ourselves to be. 
But the space remains there, whether it's something beautiful or unbeautiful, or whether it's in agreement with whether I, it's what I think I am or not. The space is there. So when we have that sense in our own meditation practice of, of being able to shift attention from the object to the awareness of what is knowing the object, then it creates a much, much uh, wider capacity for responding to things that are arising. Do you get a feeling of what I'm talking about? I see some blank faces. Not quite. No. Yes, maybe. (laughs) A little bit. No, it's here. That's just the cord. So... um, So in a meditation practice that is uh, comprehensive, what is useful is to work both sides of this equation. To begin to learn how to develop skills so that our body, hearts, and minds actually are more imbalanced. Our lives are more imbalanced. Our relationships are more balanced and healthy and congruent with values of kindness and respect. But that we start realizing that our happiness or our satisfaction is not or cannot be linked to things being fixed or ultimately coming, our satisfaction can't be linked to things that are from the outside. So when we understand the relationship between these two things, then it gives us the ability to be profoundly skillful in our, in our lives and not attach the outcome because we understand no matter how good it is no matter how healthy the relationship is no matter how healthy our bodies are these things are not things that we can rely on they change so that capacity to to wholeheartedly move in a direction of health and balance and skill without attachment is one of the things that can come from meditation because we actually are working with that on a regular basis. And so in the meditation practices is what we're going to be doing is picking up elements of working with the body and the heart and the mind, developing ways of being more skillful with what's arising, and then learning how to relax attention more in awareness itself, in the knowing itself, without being fixated on the object. And one of the reasons why that is so um, profoundly significant is because when we are dealing with things that are not congruent with who we take ourselves to be, you know, when we're still identified, well, this is who I am, and that's what I am experiencing, then there's a battle. You know, it's like you got to get rid of it, or you got to do something with it, but it's absolutely not fundamentally okay that it's there. Well, this way of practicing is like an absolute open arm welcome. Everything is welcome to be here. It all belongs. There isn't anything that doesn't belong. And so when we start to really feel what that's like, you know, when we sit with ourselves and we have our daily experiences and we're working with our own minds and our hearts and everything is welcome, it's a whole totally different level of relaxing and settling into our own skin, you know. Again, it doesn't abdicate that there are times when we need to be skillful and respond in ways which are directive. 
But it's very different to respond in a way which is skillful and to have a sense that something is not okay if I'm experiencing it. Or I'm not okay if I'm experiencing it. So what this does, or the practice does, what meditation does, is it gives us a huge space of welcome, of allowing. You know, that it's okay, absolutely okay, to know and feel what we know and feel, to experience what we're experiencing. And in that, what happens? Well, everyone will have to see for themselves. And so that will be the kind of experiment of this week, you know, getting to see what happens when you practice in this way. So the, um, the kind of uh, container that's useful um, on the onset is to, is to understand that, you know, we've all come here with that kind of intention to interested in waking up, interested in exploring, interested in practicing. And there's a couple of things that are helpful in ways that support each other in doing the practice. So we have a schedule. I don't know where it is right now. Catherine's got it. Yeah? Yes, please, thanks. Yeah. So, um, you know, the schedule is, a, is helpful to create a container. And everyone hopefully will know what the schedule is so that it's not a mystery. We're going to have um, um, uh, slightly different things happening on different days. So tomorrow will be a day just of practice, and then we'll start group interviews and things on Sunday. And uh, I'd like to do a little bit of sutta reading in the evening time for people who are interested. So working with the four foundations of mindfulness, I'll do little uh, sutta readings and uh, a, a brief kind of summary of or um, exploration of how to work with the sutta in terms of direct practice. So there are different things that are happening. So what is helpful is to come on time or a little bit early for the sittings. And when you're here for a sitting to stay for the whole time, unless there's some kind of a crisis that's happening. But what's also really helpful is, is, is that people begin to get a feeling that this is your retreat, you know. And that what everyone needs to do is to feel out what is actually needed. So some people need to actually spend a lot more time sitting, you know. Rather than sitting for 45 minutes, they need to sit for two sessions at a time or three, okay. Some people need to spend a lot more time walking, right. So rather than sitting and walking and sitting and walking, they need to walk and just walk and just walk. So the structure is set up as a container that is supportive. And then each person is encouraged to find their own intuition about what is actually needed. And we can do that in a way that is supportive for everybody by recognizing we don't come into sittings late. We don't leave sittings early. So if you've decided you want to sit for three sittings, (laughs) that's fine. That's absolutely fine, but don't get up in the middle of the third sitting and say, I can't handle it anymore, I'm going out for a walk. Okay. So the commitment is to support the structure in a way that supports everybody. The structures here will keep the structure, and each person needs to tune in, get a feeling for what is actually needed right now. And part of the reason why that's helpful 
is because, you know, it's a little bit of a setup. I'm sitting up front, and so it looks like I'm the one who knows, you know. But what my role is, is to support everybody in finding their own internal authority to check out what is the right practice at any particular moment and work with that. So my role is to support you in finding your own internal authority rather than for you to think that I am the authority. And in order for this to work or the way this starts to flourish is when people begin to start trusting themselves that they are not following desire, but they're actually doing what is the right and the most skillful thing at any particular time. So it's not like this is a kind of road march to Nibbana, you know? It's, a, it's an intuitive feeling our way through and finding what's right for each of us in the, in, in the present moment. And for different people, it's going to look different. Yeah. Now, it might be that everybody feels that this schedule is actually the most supportive thing, and it can be very powerful sitting with other people. So we have different things that come up, and some of them are pleasant, and some of them are not pleasant. But the commitment is is to learn how to open to what is arising with care and respect and kindness. So we have a structure, and then we have precepts. And so I'll go through them briefly. We can take them. Uh, we can take them uh, during this evening, and this, the precepts just create also a sense of safety and a sense of clarity about you know what happens and what doesn't happen and what is what's on and what's not on. And the precepts themselves can be a useful reflection for working with one's internal world. You know, so the eight precepts are to refrain from killing and stealing, the sexual misconduct, incorrect speech to refrain from intoxicants, to refrain from eating after midday, to refrain from um, beautification, adornment, and entertainments, and to refrain from lying on a higher luxurious sleeping place. And the point of these is twofold. One is to to help create a, a container where there's a sense of we're all on the same page about what goes and what doesn't go, to create a sense of safety that people don't need to be worried about what's happening behind their backs, and also to focus that the, the time is a real special time and, and it's a time for inward and full presence. And so in doing that, what's allowed is, is, is that the kind of absorption with what's happening around us or the thinking about what will be happening next is then supported as, a, as an internal reflection. But if we look at these precepts, these eight precepts, as internal reflections rather than only just external behaviors and standards, for me they're also really powerful. So the first precept is to refrain from killing. And, you know, hopefully that's not going to be a hard one for us to do. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know some of you very well. <laughs> But hopefully that's not going to be our challenge. But when we take this precept to a subtle level and an internal reflection about not causing harm on any level, then we're dealing in an altogether different ballgame. Because one of the things that happens and happens repeatedly is, is the way that we harm ourselves. You know, the way that we 
slander or criticize or uh, judge or condemn or berate. You know, it's, it's so constant that we hardly even notice that it's happening. It's like the wallpaper. We don't even see it. So if we use this first precept as a kind of um, reflection, as a commitment to wake up to all of those patterns and to not follow them or believe them, that is phenomenal. And I would say really that if the only thing that happened on this retreat is, is that people actually understood what it is to live with harmlessness and moved a fraction more in that direction, then the time would have been profoundly well spent. Because in essence, all of the other precepts are coming out of that. So the second precept on not taking what is not given, not stealing, you know, so it's not on to go into the kitchen and raid the refrigerator at midnight, even if you are hungry, you know. And if somebody leaves their wallet around, you know, you can pick it up and bring it to Catherine or somebody in the office, but it's like it's not for us to pilfer what's in there and take it home, you know. So, you know, we can have a sense that whatever people have, they can feel comfortable that it's going to be okay. You don't need to worry about your stuff being taken or anything like that because everyone will be agreeing to those kind of basic, kind of, that kind of standard. But as an internal reflection, not taking what's not given has to do with not asking for something that isn't there, you know. So for me, you know, I live with an alms bowl and the food that I eat is what's put into my bowl. And that itself is a whole practice and I'll talk more about it. But in a way, our minds in another way is an alms bowl. It's what is what comes into our minds is what's there. You know, it's like sometimes we have control over it and an awful lot of time we don't. And so the second precept as an internal reflection has to do with asking for something that isn't there, that isn't offered, that isn't given. The third precept is really important, you know, because uh, on one hand we take celibacy as an external boundary that this is not a time for finding partners. You know, this is not a time for chatting up people. This is not a time for engaging with each other on that level. All right, so that people don't need to worry about any of that. That's not happening. But on an internal level, what that does is rather than disconnect us from our own sexuality, it gives us the space to actually feel it and come to terms with it and feel peaceful with it. How do we experience ourselves as sexual beings? And is it okay? Does it shift? Does it change? Is it always the same? How does it drive the way we stand? How does it drive what we wear? How does it drive the way we look at other people or things? Is there a relationship between our own sexuality and how we relate to food? Okay? So what we're doing is we're creating a safe space where the kind of basic what it is to be human being can be allowed, known, and come into something approximating peaceful. Now, obviously, this is not peaceful energy for most people. And for many, it's like a lifetime of work to find some way of dealing with this that actually feels uh, comfortable. But just because it doesn't easy does not mean that it's not worthwhile. So when we use the precepts of celibacy in order to embrace, fully embrace, the extent of our own sexual experience, then what's happening is our, our whole body, heart, and mind is then welcomed into the practice. 
It's not like we have to leave it outside the door. You know, we, we chop off our sexuality and we come in as completely asexual beings. It's like, no, that's not what's happening. But what is happening is, is we're not engaging in that energy so that the whole inquiry process can be an internal one. We're actually feeling it out from what it feels like from the inside rather than trying to investigate it in partnership with somebody else. That's important. It's important for many reasons. One, because it's so powerful, but also because in my personal experience, if this stuff is disconnected, you know, it really limits how much insight and how much peace a person can actually have in their lives. And then usually what happens is there's some kind of a major crisis at some point or another when all this stuff starts to emerge. So, you know, hopefully what we can do is by welcoming this on the onset, is just that we can say, you know, this is, this is part of our life and this is part of our practice. The fourth precept has to do with speech. And in this context, it's a noble silent retreat. And the reason for that is not so much because silence is mystical, you know. It's because there's so many patterns of thought that happen around speech that as soon as we open our mouths, we usually completely lose mindfulness, you know. There's a whole thing that's happening around appearance and behavior and wanting acceptance and connecting, and we don't actually have the ability to be present sufficiently to catch it all. So the silence is a way of not disconnecting from everybody else, but of opening up another way of being present with each other. So we're not going into isolated bubbles where we're not interested in what's happening. What we're interested in doing is starting to open up the different ways of knowing. And rather than through concept and verbalizing, it's more through feeling and sensing. Now, sometimes it's helpful not to engage in direct eye contact because that can be very um, strong, particularly in silence. But again, the lack of eye contact is not because a dozen person doesn't want to feel another one, but in order to give somebody space that they can actually be present with their own process in a way where one isn't intruding on it. Yeah. So it's not coming from um, avoiding or aversion. It's coming from respect and kindness. Can you see how different that is? Yeah. So the speech thing then on the outside has to do with the way we relate our body language, the kind of movements that we make. It's, uh, you know, one is encouraged to put books down, you know, to let this be our book, our bodies and our hearts and minds be what we read. And just to see what happens if we give ourselves to the time, you know, in this kind of way, to this kind of practice. We'll have times for discussions. We'll have times for group interviews. There'll be times to sign up for one-to-one interviews. And there'll be notes on the board to ask questions. And if there's any kind of an emergency, you know, you don't need to worry about going and finding a piece of paper. You know, just find me or Catherine and talk to us, you know. But the idea is just to hold a space where the focus shifts from verbalization and conceptualization to something different, feeling, sensing, intuiting, and creating a space that respects everybody else doing that. And so for that reason, it's helpful then if, if people are not connecting to talk. Because when two people are talking, then the other people are hearing. Yeah. On an internal level, what's happening with our thoughts is, you know, thoughts are a precursor to speech. And looking at the way we think 
is an important thing to pay attention to, to wake up to. So in the classic teachings, you know, the kind of speech which is not helpful is stuff which is um, lying, untrue, harsh, divisive, or useless prattle, you know. So, you know, when we're, when we're looking at the kind of f- processes that are going on in our own internal world, you know, how much of it is harsh? How much of it is simply untrue? How much of it is just gibberish, which is just going on and on and on and on and on? So it's not that we need to make it go away. But it's certainly not helpful to believe it or to follow it or to put energy into it. Yeah? So then our speech and our relationship with speech also gives us a way of reflecting on what's actually happening in our, uh, our way of relating to our thoughts. The fifth precept has to do with drugs and alcohol and things that cause the mind to be confused. Obviously, it's not to do with prescription drugs. But, you know, one of the... Um, I remember I was, I was working with some families, some kids, and, and I was trying to, trying to help illustrate some of these things rather than just talk about it as a concept. And I took a styrofoam cup and I poured some gasoline into it, and the cup just dissolved. Like in three seconds, it just evaporated. And I said, well, you know what? That's one of the things that happens with, with alcohol is that it completely dissolves the container. So whatever kind of, of, of uh, um, values that one has or sense of integrity that one has, you know, when there's too much alcohol in the system, there's no capacity to maintain those proper boundaries. So it's not like there's something um, immoral about drinking, but what happens with drinking is, is that it creates the inability for our discernment to then be congruent with our own values. So uh, that's why the, the whole thing around drinking is, and drugs and all of that is, is encouraged in that way in order that uh, as much energy as possible can go into being upright and being clear and focused. And the internal reflection of that, you know, I don't, again, I don't know, I don't know your personal story, some of you, that well. But for me, I was like a bliss junkie for, for decades, it was like ordinary life was just absolutely intolerable to me. And I would try and, and squeeze bliss out of every possible instant that I could because just the normal thing of what was happening, I couldn't accept it, you know? And so for me, as an internal reflection, it was the way I would um, uh, move my attention in order to move away from what was happening in order to uh, squeeze something that made me feel better momentarily. So if that's useful for reflection for you, then you're certainly welcome to use it. The sixth precept has to do with eating after midday, and I I hope that's not a shock that you're coming on an eight-precept retreat. I know... Mm -hmm. I know when we were we we had sent out the initial in, in information about it, we had somehow forgotten to put that it was going to be an eight precept retreat. And I know in the past, you know, even when people knew they came and they were panicked, you know, it was like, how on earth, how can you possibly manage with just having breakfast and lunch? So the point of doing this is not to torture. I mean, that's not the ultimate goal in having an eight precept retreat. The point of an eight precept retreat is is that. 
for, for, for many people, it's actually quite okay to only eat two meals a day. And then when the eating thing and the digesting thing is finished, then the rest of the day is, is actually can be focused on meditation. Now, as an alms mendicant, because the food that I eat is what's given to me, then, you know, if I were eating three meals a day, then it would take three times the kind of effort that it takes if there's just one main meal that I'm eating. So in terms of how much logistics are required, it's much simpler. Obviously, if anyone's got health problems and you need to eat more than the kind of cottage cheese juice stuff that's offered at evening time, then, you know, let us know and we'll sort something out. My own personal experience was is that sometimes my panic was greater than the, was the thing that was overriding my body senses. So when I got a handle on my own panic responses, then I could handle things in a way that I wasn't able to handle before I got a, before I was able to work with that. So, but again, you need to you need to feel it out. You know what's what's right, what's not right for you, and and, and let us know. Again, the whole relationship with food in our is is fascinating. I mean, there is so much that goes on in the way that we relate to food. And, you know, classically, it's said that only people who are completely enlightened have a correct relationship with food because the food is so um, stimulating to the senses that it's inevitable that there's all kinds of stuff that goes on with it. We don't need it to be other than that. What we just need to do is to wake up to that's how it is, you know. So when there's this kind of big, huge explosion of, you know, I want, I don't want, is it going to be okay? Am I not going to be okay? How much should I eat? I feel terrible because I've eaten too much. What should I do? What should I do? I'm going to, you know, whatever, you know, whatever's going on. What there needs to be is a a wide open space that welcomes and says, yes, welcome. (laughs) It's all welcome. The chaos is welcome. The confusion is welcome. The desire is welcome. The sadness is welcome. It's all welcome. So rather than a kind of pressure that it's not supposed to be there, there's the embracing. And then from that, then we can begin to see if there's ways of navigating in so that we can feel a little bit more peaceful and light and easeful and skillful in the way that we're working with all of that. The seventh precept around entertainments, purification, and endurance is not a moral precept. It's a renunciation precept. And again, the idea is, is, is that you know, if we're focusing our attention on waking up, or we're wanting our attention to move that direction rather than out, we're not wanting to look at the ways that we can entertain ourselves or the kind of music that can stimulate us or the kind of ways that we can beautify ourselves or the kind of dresses that we can wear. I remember on one retreat, it was like a fashion show. There was a person and she had eight different costumes she would wear in a day. And it was like, you know, I was just... Normally, I don't even notice. I don't even pay any attention. But with her, it was like, no way you could not notice. It was like really impressive. And it was like the, the cool meditator look. So there were like eight different cool meditator looks that would get pranced into the, into the meditation hall, you know, in the morning. And so, you know, again, this is an opportunity to look at, well, all right, so clothes, it covers our body, you know, so that we're, we're basically modest and warm enough and finish. It's like end of subject. It's like, you know, it's not designer and it's not about appearance and identity. It's like real practical. Are you covered? Are you warm enough? Forget it, you know. And, you know, we can leave makeup off. We can take off earrings and jewelry. We can take off the adornments that we normally use as part of our our face that we bring to the world, you know. And just see what happens if we come 
naked, you know, just as we are, without having to dress it up or make it up or, or appear a particular way, and just see what that feels like, you know. And so the, you know, so the internal reflection around this also has to do with distraction and the way that, you know, what's actually happening in the present moment is something that for where we are, we have been conditioned that that is not okay. And just to watch the way, the way the mind moves away from what's happening into grabbing objects because what's happening is somehow not all right. The eighth precept has to do with uh, uh, sleeping on higher, luxurious sleeping places, and and what that has to do with is 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 uh, luxury, but it also has to do with the relationship with sleep. So you know, if if the bed is too like luscious, like you know, sinking into infinite blankets and pillows and cushions and covers and all the rest of that, uh, the the likelihood of hanging out there is a little bit greater than if it's simple <laughs> just good enough <laughs> but the other thing is is what's happening in our relationship with sleep you know and for many people sleep is the drug of preference you know it's like you know i've had enough i'm out of here you know just let me zone out and so then again what's needed is the, is the discernment to be able to figure out what's the difference between um, avoiding and actually sleeping because you're exhausted. So, you know, somebody who's been, you know, pushing really hard in order to get here because to take a week out actually takes a lot of effort to coordinate things and organize things and all the rest of that. Sometimes people come and they're not feeling well. That's different than if they're using sleep in order to just avoid what's happening. So again, I can't tell you you have to feel it out. And so for that reason, you know, sometimes um, if, if you're very tired, then what you need to do is to feel out whether you're going to be coming to the morning meditation or not. So this is, this is not a forced march to the nirvana. We're not doing it like that. We're working on feeling out what is skillful. And what is skillful is not to follow desire, but to move intuitively towards what is skillful, wholesome, and in balance. So that's the koan. Follow one's intuition and don't follow desire. So these eight precepts then create an external container and an internal reflection. Does anyone have any questions about them? Is there anything that's not clear? Is it too scary to talk? It's okay. Yeah. So, um, what should we do? Are you ready for a a break with your knees? Would you like to stand up and stretch? Yeah, okay. Why don't we take a a 15-minute break and come back and we'll take the precepts and we'll do some sitting meditation and uh, see how that goes, okay?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.